Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. I've also been writing in a blog, and I've got some stuff there that you might want to check out. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, we are getting into a phase of this podcast that I've been building towards now since my first episode on March 10th. And we've laid a lot of foundation, and I'm going to try to bring all of that together to really analyze this perfect storm era of 2019 to the present, which I believe, when viewed with the benefit of hindsight and context, will come to be understood as the most consequential period in the history of college sports. So I want to start with a very broad brush to identify some of the most important historical events heading into the perfect storm, and then some of the important themes that were brought into this 2019 period. And some were developed during the 2019 period. And I've laid enough foundation in prior episodes that I'm not going to repeat what I've said. I'll do my best to refer back to episodes as we go through the material here. And I'm really going to emphasize the period really from 1950 forward, the beginning of the television era. I've talked some about the first half of the 20th century and the latter half of the 19th century and really just giving some historical context to how college sports fits into higher education. But from the business standpoint, and we were looking at the business of big-time college sports, you really begin in the 1950s. Walter Byers, who was the NCAA president from 1951 to 1987, the longest-serving NCAA president, he, in his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes, talked about the the most significant milestones in his judgment. And I'm going to use that kind of thinking to just identify these important milestones. And I would start in the 1950s with the NCAA's acquisition of meaningful enforcement jurisdiction. And also in that time frame, the advent of the television era and big-time college football. And again, this is so much of this is driven by football. Basketball is a player, but a bit player. And big-time football is driving almost all of the structural changes that have occurred in the modern era of college sports. So you had uh, big-time football becoming increasingly an important product for broadcast media outlets, and the NCAA certainly exploited that, and they had this exclusive monopolistic control over televised football. Then also in the 1950s, we had the agreement to fix the cost of labor in the big-time college sports marketplace at the value of an athletic scholarship, and that is important too. And when you heard the United States Supreme Court in Austin, both at oral argument on March 31st and then in their opinion that was released on June 21st of 2021, they talk about that single feature 
of the business of big time college sports as very troublesome, not just under antitrust laws, but I think beyond that, as just inconsistent with fundamental American fairness and principles of free competition. But that fixed cost of labor began in 1956. Okay, so that's been carried forward now for almost 70 years, largely undisturbed. And I went through the history of that relationship in my Pay for Play series, which comprised episodes 18 to 23. And I do a timeline there as well. Then we go into the 1970s. And again, big time football is the marquee player here. And they begin to separate their interests from the rest of the NCAA. And this was really part of the the governance takeover that began in the 1970s. And as the TV market was maturing and becoming more and more valuable, you see the big-time football interests really starting to position themselves from a commercial standpoint where they want to be in control of the market. But in the 1970s, NCAA still had this monopoly over televised football. And then there was a further separation in 1978, and then you had another separation in the mid-1990s, and then you had the autonomy legislation. So all of those milestones that are dedicated to big-time football interest, basically taking over the governance process of the NCAA are really important, and I've talked about that. And then, of course, you have the Board of Regents lawsuit, where you had these big-time powerful football interests from the South, mostly, challenging the NCAA's control over televised football under antitrust laws. And they won that lawsuit. That single event, that single ruling, I would say, is the most significant milestone in the history of college sports. I would say it's more important than the Austin ruling. The Austin ruling was a symbolic ruling, and the unanimity was important. But the actual holding and the context in which the court ruled was very, very narrow. And a Board of Regents was very broad. And the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the NCAA's monopoly over televised football and left to the free markets the future of big-time football and really the future of college sports. And all of the commercialization and professionalization that has occurred since Board of Regents is a product of that ruling. And then you had this just massive explosion in TV content. You had the enhanced technology and new technologies to deliver programming. And all of that really set off a Wild West marketplace. And slowly, ever so slowly, the big-time football marketplace started to reorganize itself. And there were some rifts between certain conferences. I've talked about that as well. Those began to be reconciled. And you had the beginning edges of this consolidation of power into what would become the Power Five. But you had various iterations of that. And into the 1990s, we had the very beginning of conference realignment, where all these big-time powerful athletic schools were reorganizing themselves based on football interests and the value of the football product. And that was another really important milestone. It was a process, and this took 20 years, really. But it was really important. 
And then the big time football marketplace went through a couple of significant changes, trying to figure out how to maximize the value of the product. And at the time, the major bowls were really the money payoffs, the big championship-like payoffs. And they were coveted events and coveted commercial products. And the big time football interest first tried to protect those products through what was called the Bowl Alliance. And this was also the beginning of the real separation between the haves and the have-nots in, in Division One in college sports. And that was defined explicitly by football interests, just as governance is explicitly defined by football interests. And you started to have the first inklings of dissatisfaction among the have-nots, and they wanted a seat at the table. So as this football product is becoming more and more valuable, and the attempts by the big-time powerful football schools to maintain iron-fisted control over it, you started to see some pushback. And then in the late 1990s, the big-time football interest went to the Bowl Championship Series format. And that was really the first time that you started to see external regulators coming in and really looking under the hood of what the NCAA was trying to do. And in this context, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, there were a series of hearings in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, that really were looking at the fairness of the business model of the new big-time football interests and how they had organized themselves and how they were taking advantage of these valuable products in the football marketplace, the college football marketplace. And so the NCAA started feeling some heat. And, but importantly, Congress never took action. So they would conduct hearings and then the have-nots would make a little more noise and then there'd be another round of hearings. So there were a lot of hearings and the NCAA really had to fend off some substantial criticism. And the big-time powerful football interests had to fight off that criticism. But Congress never took action. So despite all of these discussions about the business model of big-time college sports. The United States Congress has not taken any action, and to this day has not taken any action, to actually pass a piece of legislation that regulated the business of big-time college sports, and that's important to understand. So then we're coming into the Miles Brand leadership era, and another really important structural event is his conceptualization of the collegiate model, and I did a couple of episodes on that, which really tried to justify this amateur professional dilemma that has been a part of college sports and the hypocrisy in college sports almost from the very beginning in the early 20th century. Actually, that may even go back to the late 19th century. So Miles Brand came up with this way to try to reconcile all these tensions and on the back side of that, you had academic interests buying into this new model. I talked about this in the last episode, and I would encourage you to listen to the two episodes on the collegiate model because that is so, so important. And then you are coming into really the end phase of conference realignment and then the aggregation of power, mostly football power, into five conferences that are the business of big-time college sports. And the Power Five conferences became a coalition of college sports interests, business interests, unlike anything that the college sports marketplace had seen. I would say that the overall sports marketplace had seen, professional or amateur or Olympic, this was a juggernaut of unprecedented 
power and market control. And then also in this 2006 period, you started to have for the first time a new regulatory threat take shape. And that was these antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And this is a whole new external threat. And this one was real because unlike Congress, the federal courts actually have a case or controversy that they have to resolve and they have to make a decision. And so we started having decisions coming out really with O'Bannon in 2015, that suit was filed in, in 2009, but the district court ruling, actually, I think it was 2014 that Judge Wilkin issued her order, but that was historic because for the first time, a federal court had held that the NCAA was subject to antitrust laws and they were subject to the full rule of reason antitrust analysis, which required the NCAA to justify its compensation limits. And they used amateurism and basically held up amateurism as this immunity card saying, we're the guardians of amateurism. And under this board of regents language that was offhand language, uh, we sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation and we're untouchable. And that defense had been successful in other cases, but in this O'Bannon case, it didn't work. (laughs) And so that was a big hit for the NCAA. And then the Ninth Circuit upheld that aspect of the court's ruling that the NCAA was subject to antitrust scrutiny and that they had to justify their compensation limits under the full rule of reason antitrust analysis. And then the case died on the Supreme Court steps in 2016. And in the interim, you had this Austin case filed. That was in 2014. That's also on the West Coast in the Ninth Circuit and in front of Judge Wilkin. And that case pressed the envelope a little bit further. In both of those cases, the NCAA had to face the reality of an external threat, an external regulatory threat that they simply had uh, no control over. They were bound by the rules of litigation, bound by the rules of evidence, bound by the district court's decisions and orders and direction. And the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, who were defendants in these suits, they had nowhere to hide. They couldn't do the old NCAA two-step to dance around Congress, and that was so successful for them. And it was also successful for the big-time powerful football interests. And they would say, well, we're going to do our best to be fair and trust us, trust us, trust us. And they, they got away with that in Congress. That wasn't working with the external regulator that is federal courts. So that was a whole new threat that was really a powerful threat. And it went to the heart of the NCAA's business model in protecting this fixed price of labor through a monopolistic control of the marketplace. And then heading into 2019, on the backside of O'Bannon, remember, O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness case. And even though the athletes technically won, the remedy was very, very modest. And there was a feeling on the backside of O'Bannon that the athletes still hadn't gotten a fair result. And that's when the California legislature started talking about passing a state law that would trump NCAA limits on name, image, and likeness compensation and allow NCAA athletes in the state of California to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. And that added a whole new layer of external regulatory threats to the NCAA's business model. And that was state legislatures. So you had these three 
really big threats floating around out there. One from Congress, the United States Congress, and that had been largely symbolic because they had never uh, expressed a willingness to jump in there and actually legislate in college sports. But then you had these federal uh, antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging the core of the NCAA business model, the amateurism-based compensation limits. And they were making some progress, at least in the Ninth Circuit. Then you had the state legislatures coming in and the NCAA had less control there and they didn't have a lobbying infrastructure at the state level. So the NCAA then really began to change the way it was thinking about managing these external threats because their practice had been for the last 30 years really to just be on defense and then they go to a hearing in Congress and they tell Congress what they think Congress wants to hear and then the issue dies down and then it pops back up and you do the same song and dance. And in these federal antitrust suits up until O'Bannon, the NCAA had been very, very successful in using amateurism as an immunity shield to even having to defend their market behavior under antitrust laws. So the NCAA was pretty much having its way in federal court. They were tap dancing on Congress's head, and I think they knew that Congress wasn't going to step in. And then when these state legislatures started coming in, and then with O'Bannon, when the Ninth Circuit held that they were indeed subject to antitrust scrutiny, that really changes the dynamic and the nature of the external threats. And in the state legislatures and in federal courts, the NCAA does not have control of the narrative. And they are an institution that has been given such broad deference. They've been in control of every narrative in college sports heading into the predicate for this perfect storm. So we have all of those milestones. And now I want to identify some of the themes that I think it's important to think about as we're going through this perfect storm. So what I'm going to do is lay out the broad themes. Then I'm going to talk about some of the specific events that have occurred before 2019 that bring us to or help shape the perfect storm in a more specific way. And then we're going to jump right into the very beginning of 2019 and then just take it event by event, month by month, hearing by hearing, case by case, and work product by work product. So the most important theme here, and this really defines the perfect storm, is who gets to decide what college sports looks like. And this goes to the heart of the NCAA's approach to external regulatory threats to their business autonomy, which they have had really unchallenged heading into 2006 in the beginning wave of these athletes' rights suits. And that is really the most important theme that plays out in The Perfect Storm. And I said in the very first episode that this whole debate, this, and this nil debate's a perfect example. This was just a guise for the NCAA to get these external regulatory threats eliminated. But this really isn't about whether athletes should be paid or even how much they should be paid because they're already getting paid through the uh, athletics scholarship. It is an athletics scholarship. And the U.S. Supreme Court acknowledged that, at least implicitly, in its Austin decision. 
And it's not really about whether the athlete should have nil compensation or not, or how much they can make off of their nil, or whether there should be some additional payments that the athletes can get above the value of their scholarship limit. The question is who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? And the NCAA doesn't want it to be the United States Congress. It doesn't want it to be federal courts. And it doesn't want it to be state legislatures because the NCAA and the Power Five lose control of the narrative, which means they lose control of their business model and their revenue streams. That's what this is all about. So that's the the primo theme. And then another theme that's really important is the relationship between the NCAA and the Power Five. And I discussed that at length in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes after the Austin oral argument on March 31st of uh, 2021. And those are episodes 13, 14, and 15. But this relationship, this really interesting and strained relationship is so important to the evolution of college sports and the current business model, but it's also going to be really important in deciding what college sports looks like going forward because whatever is happening between those two partners in this dance of self-interest is going to play out when the NCAA and the Power Five go back to Congress yet again when they come back from the uh, August recess here to try to pick up the pieces and get as much as they can from the United States Congress to uh, neutralize or eliminate these external regulatory threats. And they lost a lot of ground when the U.S. Supreme Court said that they weren't going to be able to eliminate federal courts as external regulators, at least not through a judicially created immunity shield. And then the third theme that's important as we are heading into an analysis of this perfect storm is the way that the NCAA and the Power Five have managed this amateur professional dilemma that I talked about in the last episode. And this really goes back to the earliest versions of big time college sports. And I want to look in this perfect storm at the tactics that the NCAA and Power Five use. And they use propaganda. They use spontaneous consent, which is part of the propaganda machine. And they create false consensus. And a lot of that is done through how they put their messaging out into the public domain through uh, friendly media and then having credible spokespeople adopting their propaganda to make it unchallengeable. And that happens almost instantaneously. So that has been such an effective tactic for the NCAA to manage this amateur professional dilemma that some of its basic false narratives have become literally unchallengeable. And that's another reason why I think the Supreme Court's unanimous decision, the unanimity in that is very powerful. And, And again, the ruling was so narrow that the actual outcome of that case itself isn't super helpful to athletes in my judgment. But at a symbolic level, at a political level, at a narrative changing level, that unanimity was 
important. And because the Supreme Court looked under the hood of the amateurism defense and cut right through the propaganda, cut right through these false narratives, cut right through this false consensus, because the NCAA used all three of those tactics in its briefing, in the way that it presented the Austin case to the United States Supreme Court. But the, the ways that they employed those tactics through this name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation debate between 2019 and the present is important because it, it really speaks to how easy it has been for the NCAA and Power Five to have their way with the narratives that, when you break them down logically, are incomprehensible or simply dishonest. So the fourth theme that is important, and it's related to a couple of these other themes, and that is how aggressive the NCAA and Power Five have been on one central issue, and that is maintaining the fixed cost of labor. And every action that they have taken, really going back to 1956, is driven to that single purpose. And they never take their eyes off of that prize. And the way that they have positioned themselves in Congress and in federal courts and in the arena of public opinion are all directed to protect that single compensation limit. And then the fifth theme is the absence of acknowledgement of the true contributions of African-American laborers in the big-time college sports marketplace and business model. And the in-system stakeholders' dishonesty on that issue was on full display during COVID and the social unrest that coincidentally accompanied the sports issues that had to be addressed during COVID. And then we're coming to the last theme. And this may be the most important, is that beginning in 2019, the NCAA ceased being on defense and they went on offense. They went to Congress. They pressed the immunity issue to the U.S. Supreme Court. The NCAA launched an aggressive campaign employing all of the elements of their power base, and they were pulling every lever of power that they had access to, to get Congress to do something that it had never done before. And that is to actually pass a piece of legislation that would influence the structure of college sports and the future of college sports. And everything that the NCAA sought in that campaign to get an actual bill from Congress was designed to protect their business interests. It had absolutely nothing to do with getting athletes any name, image, and likeness compensation. It was designed to eliminate every external regulator and to do it proactively and through an offensive campaign, not just sitting back and defending the antitrust suits or sitting back and uh, being dragged before Congress for another hearing or sitting back and trying to uh, chip away at the state laws state by state. They said, to hell with that. We're coming in with the big guns. We are rolling in and we are going to take this thing over. And the campaign that they embarked on in 2019 is one of the most audacious power grabs in the history of sports in America. 
It is breathtaking. So I just want to talk a second about what the NCAA and the Power Five were asking of the United States Congress. To eliminate these external regulators, they wanted three things. First, they wanted absolute antitrust immunity from federal lawsuits, federal antitrust lawsuits. And that is an extraordinary remedy. That is an extraordinary power. That is an extraordinary immunity that is granted rarely and very cautiously because it is basically telling the person who gets that immunity that they basically don't have to behave in the market on the same terms as other market participants and they don't have to abide by principles of fair and free markets. The second thing they were asking for is the nullification of any state law that related in any way to any NCAA compensation limit or eligibility rule, whether it related to name, image, and likeness or anything else. And that is through a principle called preemption. And I did a couple of episodes on preemption, and I would suggest that you take a look at those. And I talked about those in some detail. But this is an extraordinary federal power, and it is reserved for the most vital national interests, like nuclear safety and the environment and civil rights. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, is a pure form of a preemption provision because it prevents the states from enacting any legislation or any law or any practice that's inconsistent with the 13th Amendment. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 had a preemption provision that trumped state constitutions. The vital national interest was so compelling that the federal government told the states that you just can't regulate in this area. And that also raises important principles of federalism. And ironically, and I've noted this in other episodes, the Republican senators who are pumping this federal intervention on behalf of the NCAA seem to have lost their constitutions. They seem to have lost their 10th Amendment and the state's rights and federalism and free markets. And all of a sudden, they're going Bernie Sanders' big government to carry water for the NCAA. And then the third thing that the NCAA wants and the Power Five wants from uh, the United States Congress, primarily the Senate, is a declaration under federal law that college athletes cannot be deemed employees of their university. And this name, image, and likeness law has absolutely nothing to do with labor law. And in that June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee, Hawaii Senator, Democrat Senator Brian Schatz finally called the NCAA out on that, that you're talking name, image, and likeness. What the hell does antitrust immunity or a provision that says that athletes can't be employees have anything to do with name, image, and likeness? And the answer is nothing, which just shows that this name, image, and likeness has been a sham all along. There are no vital interests at stake here. The only national interest that the NCAA can articulate is this vague and dishonest protection of the integrity of college sports. That's what they're arguing to Congress. No, this is about the NCAA and the Power Five protecting their regulatory authority, protecting their business model, and protecting their revenue streams in a business enterprise that is based in large part on the exploitation of black labor. And I guess this is another theme I have to tie in here too. It relates to all these themes. 
And that is that nobody is talking about it on those terms. And that's in, in large part because the NCAA is so successful at setting the narrative at every step of the way. And it doesn't matter that people think Mark Emmert is a jerk and that he should be fired. It doesn't matter that the NCAA has a bad name in Congress. The principles that that business is based on still have breathtaking normative value. The student athlete, the amateurism, the collegiate model that are really divorced from the personalities and the baggage of the NCAA as an institution. Those are freestanding values in America that people cling to. And despite the disdain for the NCAA and its national office leadership and its approach to athletes' rights, the NCAA has been extraordinarily successful in setting the baseline parameters for any discussion about name, image, and likeness compensation. And even though they didn't pass any name, image, and likeness rules changes, and they came out with this milk toast, vague policy on June 30th, all of the principles that they want to limit name, image, and likeness rights have been incorporated into nearly every market participant who is regulating now in the nil marketplace. Whether those are state legislatures, whether those are governors through executive orders, whether they are individual institutions doing their own policy, or whether it is the Uniform Law Commission, all of those market participants now who are acting on name, image, and likeness in the vacuum of NCAA leadership and direction, they have adopted the very principles that the NCAA identified at the very beginning, going back to the formation of the working group on May 14th of 2019. So you can say what you want about the NCAA. You can criticize Mark Emmert and the NCAA national office and the board of governors and the governance structure there, but through their extraordinary power and the, the reach of that power throughout American institutions of decision-making at every level and in the court of public opinion and through important, impressive people and the biggest media entertainment outlets, broadcast outlets in the world, <laughs> the NCAA gets its message out and it is carefully groomed and it is presented in a way that the ideas themselves have unchallengeable value, even if the people that are promoting them through the NCAA don't have uh, the kind of credibility that they believe that they have. So when you look, when we go through this timeline and we go legislation by legislation and characterization by characterization and look at all these restrictions that are built around name, image, and likeness, you see that the NCAA is still winning even though people think it's losing. And that's why I've had people say, well, gosh, you're being pessimistic about this. No, I'm not being pessimistic. And I was wrong about the U.S. Supreme Court. I didn't think it was going to be a unanimous decision. And I thought there was a decent chance they were going to give some kind of antitrust immunity to the NCAA. So that was really important. But again, only at the symbolic level because the NCAA has been so successful in their litigation campaign. And when you look honestly at what the athletes have actually gotten out of these antitrust suits, it's not that much, and including the Austin case. So no matter what happens, we have all these milestones and everybody gets all excited about them. And that's, I think there is cause for some optimism now because we have this limited nil marketplace that's being influenced by free market principles, not by the NCAA. That's important. But in the grand scheme of things, the decisions on name, image, and likeness have been almost 
to a restriction everything that the NCAA has wanted all along. And when you are bringing in principles into this nil legislation that are explicitly or implicitly built around amateurism, the collegiate model, and the concept of the student-athlete, if that's your starting point, there's not much left over. There simply can't be, by definition, that much left over. So I think it's really important to step back here and look at what the NCAA has really accomplished, even when it appears that they're losing. So that's an important theme to, to keep in mind, particularly as we get into the part of the perfect storm where the NCAA begins to lose control of the narrative in the Senate because of the November election and then the Georgia special elections. So all of those themes are important to keep in mind, and I'll reinforce them as we are walking through the perfect storm. So what I want to do now, this will probably be the rest of this episode. And then in the next episode, I'm going to start at the very beginning of 2019. I just want to identify some of the more specific things that happened leading up to 2019 that really set the context for the way that the NCAA latched on to this name, image, and likeness issue opportunistically to use it as a Trojan horse to get in front of Congress to essentially end the athletes' rights movement and eliminate all external regulators through their offensive campaign to take action to defeat the interests of anybody who competes with the NCAA's revenue streams and their market power. So I've talked about the litigation. I'm I'm not going to go through that again. We have this basic timeline starting in 2006 with the White case and then going through really to this Supreme Court ruling. And I would include the House case. I did an episode on the House case. We're going to talk about that, too, as we get into real time. And then the other thing is we had I talked about conference realignment, but an important component of that on the backside of conference realignment was the formation of the college football playoff and that was in 2012 they did a 12-year deal with espn which was worth including all the bowl tie-ins about uh, 750 million dollars a year and the first cfp game wasn't played until 2015 but that gave enormous energy to the football market and there had been this discussion for decades about whether there should be a playoff and football was saying no 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 it's going to ruin college sports the same narrative that the NCAA uses oh it's going to kill college sports not only did it not kill college sports but some of the very same people who said that 15 20 years ago now say that the college football playoff is the greatest thing that ever happened to big time college football. And then the other thing, a specific thing to kind of cement in the big time powerful football's control of governance and the separation of its interest was the creation of autonomy classification. And that was 2013, 2014. And in my pay for play episodes, I did two episodes on this 2014 period because it is so important. So I would urge you to to listen to those episodes as well. And out of that came these autonomy benefits, these marginal benefits that looked great compared to what the athletes didn't have before, but really didn't change the relationship that much between the revenue producing athletes and the Power Five. And remember, autonomy legislation applies only to the Power Five conferences. 
All right, so this was their big power grab within the NCAA umbrella. And then they gave these nominal benefits, the full cost of attendance scholarship, unlimited meals. They gave four-year scholarships. They had some time balance uh, issues. There were some additional insurance benefits, modest things that didn't really change the relationship between the athletes and the Power Five schools. But those were benefits that the next group of competitors, this group of five and any other schools that wanted to try to run with the big dogs, they couldn't afford. And those schools are going bankrupt trying to keep up. So that was a really important specific event that occurred. And around the same time in 2014, you had the NCAA hiring Brownstein Hyatt this high-powered lobbying firm in D.C. And that, along with the change in the legal counsel that, that they had from O'Bannon to Austin, and Austin was filed in 2014, brought the legal and legislative thinking inside the Beltway. And that was a huge transition that was really important. And you can't underestimate the significance of getting all of the NCAA's interests in managing these external threats essentially in the same pool. And it was all inside the beltway and the thinking was inside. And then uh, something happened in 2015 that virtually nobody talks about. I wrote about this in detail and the plaintiff's attorneys in house picked up on it. The way that they framed this issue sounded real familiar to me. So <laughs> I don't know if they're reading my blog, but the NCAA has been saying that it is just impossible to put together a name, image, and likeness compensation formula. We can't do it. It's like solving healthcare, and this is going to take forever, and we have to really bring the best minds together and do this in a really thoughtful way. <laughs> And that theme is just BS. And, and I talked about that a couple episodes ago when we look at how quickly the governors and the institutions in Power Five states and schools got name, image, and likeness rules and policies in place within a week. The NCAA has been fooling around with this for decades and can't seem to bring a complete, coherent rules change into NCAA rulemaking. But in 2015, the NCAA, through its waiver process, started approving name, image, and likeness waivers. So the NCAA's regulations, Bylaw 12.5, Promotional Activities, prohibits athletes from using their name, image, and likeness. It does not prevent the universities from exploiting the athlete's name, image, and likeness. But the athletes can't make any money off of it because that would violate amateurism. It would be pay-for-play and all the things that the NCAA spent $100 million in O'Bannon saying couldn't happen or it would kill college sports. So the NCAA had this off-the-books nil waiver program because you can request relief from an NCAA rule, a, a limiting rule, and it's through an ad hoc process. And then there's this legislative exceptions committee. I forget the technical name of it, but they review these waiver requests and then they decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether to grant a waiver. And between 2015 and 2018, the NCAA got around 200 name, image, and likeness waiver requests in which they asked for a waiver of the limitation set forth in Bylaw 12.5. And the NCAA, in its uh, final report of the working group in April of 2020, said that 98% of those waivers were granted, but they didn't tell us what the waivers were, what the nil activity was. And wouldn't that have been a logical starting point 
in looking at the mosaic of potential nil opportunities, how the NCAA actually viewed them, not hypothetically might happen if they uh, had access to an opportunity, what actually happened. And those waivers were never made public. The working group refers to a couple of them in its final report. And the plaintiff's attorneys in this House case are looking at that specifically, making the same arguments that I have been making since those nil waivers were identified in the final report in April of 2020. And that is, they've already been doing this. (laughs) We, We don't have to speculate. We have a body of nil market activity that we could be looking at. And then In 2018, because of the increased volume in these name, image, and likeness waiver requests, the NCAA put that name, image, and likeness waiver category under its pre-approved list. So there are certain categories of legislative waivers that are so routine that they really are delegated down to the conference and to the individual schools within certain parameters. So the, the NCAA did that in 2018. And then you had schools and conferences making these decisions within these parameters without a lot of oversight. And in the final report in April of 2020, the NCAA's working group said that the body of waivers that may exist between 2018 and and 2020, when the report was released, was so large that they really couldn't even predict, but they guessed that it was a a really big pool of waivers. But nobody's made an effort to actually track them down. The NCAA has refused to produce them. And through this new process that started in 2018, this uh, clearinghouse process, the conferences are supposed to keep copies of all these waivers. So there should be a paper trail, but nobody's following it. And the NCAA certainly isn't serving those documents up. So we have that. Then let's see. The other thing, and this happened in 2017, and this is relevant to name, image, and likeness. There was this scandal in college basketball, men's college basketball, that came out of the Justice Department in late 2017. And you had agents and athletes and universities and shoe company people conspiring to steer athletes to certain schools. And it was just a big ball of mess. And that resulted in some indictments in New York under wire fraud statutes. And it was an interesting theory, but... As that broke into through the media, uh, the NCAA quickly, very quickly formed the Commission on College Basketball. And I'll talk about this separately at some point. And I I did a post on that called Implausible Deniability in my blog, and I may link to that. So the commission was formed, I think, in October of 2017. And they released a report about six months later in April of 2018. And... In that report, they talk about name, image, and likeness because that issue came up because it's been on the radar for decades and through the O'Bannon case. And the the notion was that the NCAA needed to get its act together on nil and get something done. And remember, this is 2018. And the commission basically punted on nil. But after the release of that document, Condoleezza Rice, who was chair of the commission on college basketball, She made some really important statements and had some insights. And first of all, she said these rules are incomprehensible. These name, image, and likeness rules are incomprehensible. She also said that the NCAA's insistence on building any name, image, and likeness compensation around the collegiate model posed some threshold 
problems at the logical level, at the basic logic level. And that is if the collegiate model is being used as a substitute for amateurism, and I believe it was in that context, in the name, image, and likeness context, how can you offer any compensation, meaningful compensation, within principles that prohibit a compensation? And I've come back to that again and again and again. And the NCAA simply hasn't answered that question. And I believe that all of this difficulty that they see in coming up with uh, coherent name, image, and likeness compensation rules is the product of that practical impossibility. It's, It's ridiculous on its face that you can have compensation built around principles that, by definition, prohibit compensation. And so Dr. Rice talked about that, and I think that that was important. And then she also pointed out the ridiculousness of trying to limit name, image, and likeness to activities that don't relate in any way to an athlete's performance or notoriety or skill or ability. And she referred to the Notre Dame women's basketball player that I referenced in an episode a few episodes back who had a monster NCAA tournament and hit winning shots in the semis and in the national championship game. And she was invited to be on Dancing with the Stars. And Dr. Rice said in a light way, how did her appearance on that show, this Notre Dame basketball player's appearance on that show, not have anything to do with her athletic performance ability or notoriety? Again, it's silly, but the NCAA is drawing all these lines. And these are the kinds of lines that are being incorporated wholesale, as conceptualized by the NCAA, into all these name, image, and likeness proposals. The state laws, the congressional laws, the executive orders, and now these institutional policies and the Uniform Law Commission. They all contain that restriction, and it's really silly on its face. And how do you draw that line? I think it's almost impossible. And so Dr. Rice, in some comments, I think it was to USA Today, a week or to 10 days after the report was released, She basically called out the NCAA and said, you you need to just get this done. This is your problem. Your rules are incomprehensible. You've been uh, dilly-dallying, and we've just spent 10 years litigating name, image, and likeness in O'Bannon. If you're serious about this, do something. And those admonitions and suggestions fell on deaf ears. And then a couple other things, and this is more in the nature of overarching themes, and maybe I should have talked about these earlier before I got into these specific events. But the other thing that's really important to understand is that in this period between, I would say, 2010 and COVID, the big-time college sports marketplace, the Power Five marketplace, after they've aggregated all their power, we now have the Power Five as this unified group of power players in college sports. It's unprecedented. And you have this juggernaut that is unlike anything that the sports world has ever seen. And that's true, not just at the uh, business level, at the business model level, at the market dominance level, but at the political level because of the schools that are in the Power Five. There's 65 schools, 53 of them are public, including 34 of the nation's flagship state universities. And among those 12 private schools, you have some of the most prestigious private schools in America. You have the the most powerful institutions of higher education in the United States and in the world, quite frankly, coming together and united around this goal of maximizing revenue in football, men's basketball. And that is just a fundamental shift in 
the marketplace and the aggregation of that power led to one of the biggest bull markets in the history of college sports. And I believe this was episode 14. I did three Prisoner's Dilemma episodes in the middle one, the second one, episode 14. I talked about the massive increase in revenue that occurred between 2010 and 2018. And I had put together for my blog a chart that was based on trial exhibits in the Austin case. And then the expert reports of Dan Rasher and Noel, I can't remember his first name, but we had these two experts testifying on behalf of the athletes and they looked at the revenue streams to the Power Five schools and how those have changed. So I put together this chart that showed the Power Five conference revenues in that time frame, and then also the commissioner's salaries, the conference commissioner's salaries. And I'm not going to go through the whole chart, but just to give you some sense of how crazy this bull market was and how quickly the revenue streams increased. And that was not just the result of the college football playoff and the bowl tie-ins, but it also corresponded the explosion of Power Five conference networks. And this really actually goes back to 2007, but between 2010 and COVID, you had every Power Five conference launching an independent conference network that was outside of all of the contracts they already had for regular season programming or for postseason play. It was an entirely independent product. And so the conference revenues, and these are just all the revenues that come through the conference. This does not include the institution-specific revenue that, say, Ohio State would get from home football games and ticket sales and concession sales and all the marketing and promotion that they do at the institutional level. This is just conference revenue. But just to give you a couple of examples... Let's go do the SEC and the Big Ten. They're the, they're the big boys. They're the power players. The SEC in 2010 had total conference revenue of $244 million. Eight years later, in 2018, just a year before the perfect storm begins, the total conference revenue in the SEC was $659 million, an increase of 170%. Okay. In the Big Ten, total conference revenue in 2010 was $232 million. Eight years later, total conference revenue in 2018, $758 million, a 225% increase. That's just stunning. And then let's look at the conference commissioner's salary in those two conferences. So in 2010, the SEC, Southeastern Conference, these are the big Southern schools, Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, LSU. But the SEC Conference Commissioner in 2010, he made a million dollars. And then in 2018, he made four million, an increase of 300%. And then I'll just, I just want to point this out. The Pac-12 numbers are insane. So in 2010, the Pac-12 brought in $100 million of total revenue, total conference revenue. Then in 2018, they brought in 
million, an increase of 400%. Then the PAC-12 conference commissioner in 2010 made $735,000. In 2018, the conference commissioner for the PAC-12 made $5.3 million, an increase of 650%. And when I say that between 2010 and COVID, we were in the midst of the biggest bull market in college sports history. Those are the numbers that support it. And it was just extraordinary growth in the market. And it was also in this period, you had uh, technology changing in a way where instead of having to watch a game on TV, you could watch it on a device that fits in the palm of your hand. The smartphone technology took off, iPhone technology took off, and just really opened a whole new door into marketing opportunities and you had conference networks and all this stuff. So you had an explosion in content. You had additional delivery methods with these new technologies. And you had a different type of programming with these conference networks. And it was just crazy. And all of that revenue, all of that demand for the product, all of the value in the Power 5 product comes from two sports and only two sports. One is football and one is men's basketball. And those two products have the highest concentration of African-American athletes in any sport in any NCAA division. And under Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and its adoption by Mark Emmert, by the governing boards, by its spokespeople like Rebecca Blank testifying in Congress, And all of the in-system stakeholders who are rationalizing why the big-time college sports marketplace makes sense under the umbrella of higher education, they are all saying that we take this money from these black laborers and then we divert it to white interests, most of whom are well-off, downstream, and then we just say that's what uh, colleges do. That's just the way it works in higher education. And there's no discussion about who the people are in those transactions, who the people are in that diversion of wealth, and what the true benefits are to the downstream beneficiaries, and whether that money is actually being spent for a purpose that's consistent with the university's academic mission. And then you're right back to this ridiculous formulation of the collegiate model that tried to reconcile those tensions. And now everybody's happy. Nobody's complaining. And people in the academic community just say, well, yeah, it's great. It's a part of what we do here. And it's just the way that universities operate. You take money from the rich and you give it to the poor. (laughs) This isn't Robin Hood. This is reverse Robin Hood. And nobody's saying that out loud. And that's another thing to keep in mind when we look at the incentives in the system and the way that they have been framed and the way that they have been articulated and the way that they've been pursued by the people in system who are overwhelmingly white and male to preserve a status quo that is indefensible. And again, I think you heard some of that from the U.S. Supreme Court in its unanimous decision in Austin. So those are the underlying dynamics. Those are the themes that I want us to keep in mind as we're going through this perfect storm. And then we're going to pick up in the next episode at the beginning of 2019 and really start breaking this down at event by event, suit by suit, work product by work product basis. And it's all going to come together and all these themes are going to reveal themselves. And I think it's just a really fascinating look 
at how powerful interests in America get what they want and how easy it is for them to get what they want. And I, I haven't really framed all of this in terms of the operation of principles of structural racism, but you don't have to go too far afield from what's what happened in this perfect storm to see it through that lens. And I'm going to talk about that uh, a little bit. And, and then at some point, I'm going to get into that in much more detail when I talk specifically about the racial component of the big time college sports marketplace. So for now, we've set the table. Everything's ready to go. And we are going to start in the next episode with the very beginning of 2019. And this perfect storm that is going to, I think, be viewed as the most consequential era in the history of college sports. So with that, I'll close this thing out. I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.